Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. But as I mentioned at the beginning... Is this your way of firing me, Colin? <laughs> Once, once I'm you realize you can ask and answer the question, yeah. then it's just when you when you stimulate my brain, my brain starts <laughs> rounding off and I just can't stop it. We could say that a foundational bias that is driving both of these phenomena is the fact that people just want to make sense out of the world. And therefore, I guess one of the advantages of employing a consultant is you are going in and looking at the data and giving a independent, is a good word, view. Hi, this is Colin, and I wanted to ask you a favour. It would really help Ryan and I if you could spend a moment and complete a review of the podcast. Positive reviews help us get out to more people, and we love hearing from our listeners and seeing what people have written. So please, just take a moment and complete a review. Thanks very much for your help. So Colin, I came across some interesting data the other day that I wanted to run by you. Okay. So according to this website that I was looking through, there's a relationship between the total revenues generated by golf courses in the US right, and visitors to Disney World specifically to Epcot. So as, and they're inversely related. So as revenue for golf courses goes down over time, yeah. then the number of visitors at Disney World goes up. So you live in Florida part of the year. I thought that I would see if you had any hypotheses as to why that might be. Because people that are playing golf, they've declined because their families have forced them to go on holiday. Or they've gone to the Disney golf courses. Oh, see, that's interesting. So golf hasn't changed. It's just where they've gone. Those are two very reasonable explanations. So let me give you another bit of data from the same website. Okay. So here they found a correlation between the marriage rate in Mississippi right. and the per capita consumption of whole milk in the U.S. So the correlation there is 99.3%. There, These are right. perfectly related. That's because... People that are married consume more milk. Interesting. And there are more cows in Mississippi. And so as marriage rates go down in Mississippi, less milk is consumed because married people consume more milk. You're getting really good at this. One more, one more. <laughs> You're making me feel either I'm going to come out of this feeling very intelligent or very stupid. And I'm oh, not sure which. <laughs> to be clear, I'm I'm setting you up hard. Let's do one more, shall we? So, yeah. With that introduction, why not? <laughs> <laughs> the number of films that Nicolas Cage has appeared in per year right. is inversely correlated with murders by smoke, fire, and flame. So when Nicolas Cage is not in the movie that year, more people are murdered by fire. And when Nicolas Cage is in more movies, fewer people die. Because it's Nicolas Cage allegedly <laughs> committing all these murders and he's so too busy. To occupy his time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know how he occupies his time. 
he occupies his time by not playing golf and going to Disney instead. <laughs> you just tied all this and not drinking milk. You just tied all this up together so neatly. So obviously this was a setup, Colin. I have to say you performed admirably well. That was, uh, was an exercise in creativity. So all of these were taken from a, a website that collates what are called spurious correlations. So these are things that have no relation to each other, but are somehow, just through the randomness of statistics, are somehow very closely related. And so if we if we ran these in the same model, it appears that they must be related in some way. The reason that I, and I use this demonstration in class too, the reason that this works and is, is kind of fun and funny is because we are so compelled to explain it. Like when we got to the Nicolas Cage example, clearly we were kind of joking, but that first one that I, I showed you, or I talked to you about revenues of golf courses and visitors to, to Disney, like that seems like we, there may be something there, you know, we could come up with, there's another one that I use sometimes, which is number of lemons imported from Mexico and U.S. traffic fatalities. And again, you might be able to come up with something about like the state of the economy as we're getting wealthier, we buy more fresh fruits and then also more people are on the road and therefore, I, but the point is there's no relation. Like we, we are, we are desperately seeking an explanation for something that on some level we know means nothing and we can't stop ourselves from doing it. We can't stop ourselves from trying to make sense out of the stuff that we see around us. And that's what I wanted us to talk about today. This is interesting because, I mean, clearly it absolutely ties to customer experience and I'm not being sarcastic when I say that because one of the things that really bugs me, and I think we've talked about this before, is how people don't, they don't want to look at new data. Mm. They don't want to look at data from a different perspective. So, because we actually use a similar type of example for why correlation research does not just, you shouldn't just look at correlation research because one of the statistics that we use is, I think it's the number of people that die in a skiing accident is a direct correlation to the number of people that die in bed sheets. Yeah. So it's just bloody ridiculous, obviously. But if you looked at those two bits of data, you'd go, well, they're correlated, so therefore that must be the case. And clearly it isn't. So when we do research, we use another advanced form of statistics that do things. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because when we present that research to clients, I get amazed by the amount of people that just want to go back to the old stats or who look for something to prove their own view. Now, I know we're getting into the realms of confirmation bias and which effectively is people want to confirm their view of the world. But anyway, why don't you carry on about this patterns bit and then we'll come back and and talk about. Well, I think I can I can tie it all back together because we could say that a foundational bias that is driving both of these phenomena is the fact that people just want to make sense out of the world. And so a part of that will be that if you've got an explanation for what's going on, if you think you have a story that explains things and somebody comes in with data that's messy and says that, well, maybe your story isn't right and we're not sure what the new story is yet, but we got to figure some new stuff out. 
then there may be this tendency to retreat back to your previous story because you you want the world to make sense. And so that means we're yeah. going to look for patterns. And it also means once we've got a story, we're going to stick to it. We're sense-making machines. Yes. Let me amend what you've just said, if you yeah. don't mind. Please. Because I think people want to make their sense yes. of things. Yes. So in other words, it may not make sense, <laughs> yeah? And there may be other patterns in there that they're just not seeing, but for one reason or another, and it can just be political. Yeah? Yes. And, and when I say political, I, I don't mean big politics, I mean corporate politics, that the data that you're presenting doesn't help them and doesn't help their case or doesn't help their belief, and therefore it must be wrong. Oh, absolutely true, right? I mean, all kinds of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias and all of that. Yeah, yeah. And and that comes under the heading, doesn't it, of there's never one thing happening. So human beings want to make sense of things. I mean, that's the clear message out of this podcast today and other things we're going to talk about. But we want to make sense of things. We want to see patterns of behavior or we want to interpret things, don't we? Yes, let me uh, tell you a story from uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's somebody we reference frequently, won a yep. Nobel Prize in economics. He tells this story. He's, he's kind of a big proponent of this idea that people try to find patterns in things all the time, and often we're wrong about that. Now, we should be clear that this, this drive to make sense and this ability to see patterns, that served humanity pretty well over the millennia. Like, there's a lot of power there. The danger is when we overapply it, and we we do that frequently. So Kahneman tells this story about how he was uh, designing a psychology experiment, and this, for whatever part of it it was, he designed a computer program that would flash up random patterns. So think of it like a Rorschach test on a computer. So it would just it would light up some pixels and not light up others, and create these random patterns, and they would change over time. So he was testing out this software and, and watching the patterns change, and he said that it didn't take very long before he started to notice patterns in the way that these pixels would turn on and off. And so he could start to see shapes appear and the shapes change over time and start to predict what was going to come next. And he had to stop himself because he knew that there was no pattern. He knew that it was random because he made it. He <laughs> created the random software generation package. And yet he was still seeing the patterns in there because we do it automatically. It's just, it's a very intuitive thing to do. So here is, here's his quote, I apologize, it's a little bit long, but it's, um, it's Kahneman and it's, it's very insightful. So he says, we are pattern seekers, believers in a coherent world in which regularities appear not by accident, but as a result of mechanical causality or someone's intention. We do not expect to see regularity produced by random process. And when we detect what appears to be a rule, we quickly reject the idea that the process is truly random. Random processes produce many sequences that convince people that the process is not random at all. Wow. Yeah. Right. So uh, we should forgive ourselves for falling into this trap because Daniel Kahneman does from time to time. But we should also recognize this as a danger to us in terms of how we process data and how we make decisions. At a basic level... We're talking, when we also talk about patterns, we're talking about what we see. So you lay on your back, you look up at the clouds, and yes. you see a face. Mm -hmm. And there's been lots of examples of these things, haven't there? Yes. So, you know, there's, was it the man on the moon or Mars? There was uh, well, a I, I think both, in fact. There was a man on the moon, and there was a face in Mars, and both of those are examples of this. So famously, there was a, a 
picture taken of the Martian landscape where it looked like a human face was carved in relief at a giant scale. You could very clearly see the eyes and the nose and the mouth. And this led to all kinds of speculation about ancient civilizations or aliens leaving us a message. It was very exciting. It was, of course, nothing. It was just the shadows happened to fall across this plateau in such a way that it kind of looked like a face. When it was taken from a different angle, then there was no face there at all. That would be an example, yeah. There's a a link we'll put in the show notes that has got a website with a number of these on, because I was looking at these um, before we we started. Yeah, they're super interesting, aren't they? Yeah. There was like like pictures of Jesus in tortilla chips and Uh the tourine shroud and the, you know. You know, the tortilla chips things are real, but the other ones, though, are very... (laughs) No, I I do I do woodworking, and one really common thing, uh, if you look at wood a lot, is to see patterns and faces. And a lot of people will will look at their wood paneling and see the face of a dog, for instance, um, in the yeah. knots in the whorls of the the grain there. Yeah. And there was another one which I I read on that site, which uh, reminds me from years ago, which was if you play the Beatles tune "Strawberry Fields Backwards." Yes. It says Paul is dead. <laughs> yeah, and I don't it, like the the Beatles were tricksy enough that it's possible that they did that on purpose. But I have a story like that. With, this was back in the early 1990s. My friend got a software package on his computer that allowed us to play stuff backwards. And so, in junior high or high school, we were just kind of messing around with it and playing songs backward. And my friend picked up his his younger brother's toy, which made a sound. It was some like jingle or song or something and we played that backwards and in the middle of this nonsense noise it very clearly said satan <laughs> there's no way somebody actually backmasked a message onto this child's toy but we heard that in the and we all just stopped and looked at each other and were shocked but it, that's very clearly just a random pattern of noise that we made sense of and interpreted in a way that was uh, terrifying if you're 14 yeah so I, I'm in the middle of reading a really interesting book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by a guy called, and I'm going to ruin his first name here, by Yovol Harari. And it's really good talking about effectively where human beings come from. And, and one of the things that he talks about in the book was the fact that there has this sort of been this sort of cognitive revolution, mm-hmm. you know, which effectively... In other words, we can think of concepts. So we can think of things like brands or nations or companies as opposed to necessarily just thinking about here's a desk or here's a piece of wood or there's an animal and, in other words, physical things that you can see. But he talks about the fact that one of the big advantages that human beings have had or developed was this ability to to conceptualize things and again that feels to be where this sort of pattern thing comes into play that you can play about with concepts as opposed to and see things that aren't uh, that you think are there but aren't necessarily there i mean again if we think to the usefulness to us as a species of trying to find patterns and figure out, I mean, think about how useful it would be to note that the seasons are repetitive if you are a hunter-gatherer, right? And and how that would start allow you to move into agriculture and maybe start to predict the weather in very broad terms. Our ability to see patterns and to, to look for regularity and to create rules and laws 
terribly useful. Yeah, and that was one of the things he was talking about was the fact, and it's a really good book. So I'd, I, again, I'll, we'll put the link in the show notes, but a really interesting book because he was talking about the fact that seeing the patterns of animal behaviours yes. or seeing the patterns of weather or seeing the patterns of various different things that's helped us as a species to progress, basically. Yeah. But I guess the issue is that whilst those definitely can be advantages and definitely are our advantages, and let's maybe tie it back to custom experience stuff, mm-hmm. which seems a, seems a real jump, doesn't it, to talk about <laughs> the, the human beings on the savannah uh, understanding the patterns of animal migration, and now we're talking customer and, experience. And faces on Mars, and then now customer yes. experience. Yeah. <laughs> but the interesting part is that if you start to look at what your customers are doing, then the danger is is that you see a pattern that actually isn't there. Yes. Or either in physically watching them, yeah, through ethnography or whatever else, or through data that actually you're seeing a pattern that's not there and then you're therefore you're making the wrong judgments. That's exactly the danger. In fact, the reason that we chose to talk about this topic now is uh, based on an article that uh, that I found a little while ago that we'll also link to in the show notes. A professor of economics named Gary Smith, and he wrote a, a very nice article about the dangers of finding phantom patterns in big data. So Big data is amazing. The more data we collect, the more we can learn about things. While we're generally proponents of data and data analysis and and cleaning the insights you can off of the data you collect, there's also this danger that we need to weigh against, which is the larger the data set that we're playing with, the statistically, the more likely it is that we will find spurious correlations. So in other words, as you have this massive data set, then it's not going to take very much in there in order to find some relationship that's not actually real, but that's like the Nicolas Cage films and murder by fire type of relationship. And that's where we need to be cautious because if we, if we start chasing down all of these possible correlations, then we're going to start developing explanations that don't actually hold any water that we're, we're looking for patterns that aren't there. How are you going to grow your market when everyone is competing on the same things? What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since 2005, we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you. So how do you overcome that? I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so a way of overcoming that is must be you get different groups of people to look at the same data mm-hmm independently and thinking about it that's a bit like you guys do don't you with your peer reviews yes and when i say you guys i'm talking about academia and science and when you think about all the vaccine data that's coming out and you know people having to look at that independently and everything else i guess that's that's trying to make sure that you don't get into the the emperor's not got any clothes on peer review is a is a very simple idea 
And a version of it absolutely can be employed within organizations. The, the basic idea is people are motivated by some outcome. And when we're motivated to see something, it's very easy for us to see it. So if, if you've got a team that really wants to run some new customer experience initiative or, or ad campaign or whatever it is, they will be motivated to find evidence to support them and to support that viewpoint. If you have somebody in the team or from another team assigned to play devil's advocate where they, you say your motivation is to find evidence against that, that's going to, to end up in a situation where you have a much clearer idea of what's going on than if you just have the one perspective. Not because anybody's necessarily even being dishonest. It's just that we fool ourselves. We start to see patterns that aren't really there because we want them to be there. And thinking about it, it's, it's interesting because whenever we have these types of conversations, I sometimes think to myself, the answers, maybe I'm seeing a pattern here, uh, <laughs> the answers, or, it's like we were talking to Joe Pine the other day, mm -hmm. and Joe said, he's not a futurist, he, he sees what is happening today, and he just sort of sheds light on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought, that, I thought that's an interesting way of looking at things. The point I'm trying to make is, effectively, that's what we do as consultants. Okay, by employing a consultant, you're employing somebody from outside the organization who is an expert on that particular topic. And therefore, I guess one of the advantages of employing a consultant is that you are going in and looking at the data and giving a an independent is a good word view of things yeah, rather than so like a peer review. So it's independent. It's not well, I'm part of this organization or it was me that ran that project and therefore I've got to justify why we did this and back it, et cetera. It's, it's more of an independent view of things, isn't it? I mean, you've described your job to me in the past as being in part telling people that their baby is ugly. And Absolutely. That's exactly yep. the process we're describing, right? So pulling this into the realm of parenthood, you are biologically motivated to love your child. That's kind of hardwired into you. And we all know parents who therefore <laughs> come to decide that their child can do no wrong and uh, is never to blame for anything. All it takes is somebody looking at it from a slightly different angle to, to provide some useful insights to those kinds of parents. I guess the danger, though, thinking about it, if I'm just talking against myself for a moment, is we go in and look at things through a customer experience lens. And I could argue against myself that says that, that we're looking for a customer experience pattern or an answer mm. that's customer experience related. So I guess that's something we have to be careful about as well. Isn't well, it? I, I think that's very insightful. The magic of peer review is not that the peers are smarter than the people producing the original research. By and large, it's drawn from the same group of people. The magic of peer review is that they've got a different set of motivations. So I think that you as a consultant or anyone as a consultant does still go in with biases. As you said, you're, you're going to be biased towards a customer experience solution because that's your experience set. And that's what your expertise and the, and the kind of the angle that you're looking at. I would argue that's still valuable to the extent that people within the organization are looking at it from a different angle. And so when we kind of triangulate across all of these different motivations and biases, 
we end up in a better place than if we had a, a, a single way of looking at it. And to make myself feel a bit better, we wouldn't be talking to them unless they thought it was That's <laughs> an right. issue with that anyway in the first That's place. Right. Yeah. But overall, the message is you can see a pattern. Yes. And the pattern could be just the bias. So actually, what you need to do is you need to sort of check whether that pattern is is there or not. Any thoughts on how you actually go about checking it? I mean, we've talked about sort of peer reviews and I guess getting other people, whether that's, I guess, people within the organization or could be that you're in an association or it could be that you do get a consultant to come in and and look at the data. And I think I'm I'm answering my own question now, aren't I? But as I mentioned at the beginning- Is this your way of firing me, Colin? Once you realize you can ask and answer the questions, it's just when you when you stimulate my brain, my brain starts <laughs> rambling off and I just can't stop it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a pattern. I learn something and then I just rivel off now. <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. Now ways of overcoming the bias. Yes, no, it's that's right. Yeah. So, any other thoughts from you? On- uh, yeah, a couple. I mean, now that my job's online, I better come up with something. Um, <laughs> so th- this is not easy, but taking a, a scientific approach to this really helps. So in science, you're supposed to come up with your hypotheses and then test them. Now, a lot of times the hypotheses are from observation. So we, we notice some pattern and then we come up with an explanation for it. And then we test it. The issue that we run into with with these phantom patterns and spurious correlations is that we don't go through that entire process where we often will see some pattern and then come up with an explanation for it and then stop, right? There's nothing wrong with looking through data for patterns. The issue is then are we testing our explanations? Yes. And to do that, to test it properly, and this is really, really hard, but to, to test it properly, we should then start looking for evidence against it. All right. So if this is our explanation, we think that this is causing it. Is there any evidence out there to suggest that this is not it? So you do actually want someone to try to take a contrary view, don't you? Yes. This goes back to what we were saying before. That's really hard. Like as soon as you've come up with an explanation, as you were saying before, you want the world to make your sense out of things, right? And so now that this is your explanation, you are going to be heavily biased towards evidence that supports that view. And it's going to be really hard for you to get out of that and argue another side. So assign that to somebody else, somebody who's not involved. And that's part of what the peer review process is, is to have somebody who's not involved in the research say, well, it could be something else instead. Have you considered that? I think the interesting thing for me is because, and this is where the, the subjects get so interesting, is you're actually then talking about leadership as well, aren't you? Oh, yeah, because, and culture, you know, very much. The, yeah, because the, the danger is is that the boss sees a pattern and then nobody's prepared to put their neck above the, the parapet to go, hey, well, you could be wrong, it could be this. Yes. So actually turning around and saying, okay, we, I want you to disagree with me, I think is exceptionally healthy. And it actually reminds me, the other part of that for me is, the, as you're rightly saying, testing it, okay, mm-hmm. and then maybe getting that sort of in, even internally that sort of peer review and getting people to look at it from a different perspective. But the other thing I would suggest is just using, as I mentioned at the beginning, a, a different form of mathematical 
techniques mm -hmm. to look at the same type of data. So the danger is, is everybody in business uses correlation and correlation is good, but it also, as we've learned, picks up the wrong pattern sometimes. Sometimes you may discover that the reason your sales went down last quarter is because Nicolas Cage had a new movie out. And that's just not very helpful to you, even if statistically it may be true. So all interesting stuff, Ryan, but what does this mean? What What's the practical steps? What does this mean that people should do? Yeah, well, I hope that just knowing that this is a phenomenon, knowing that we are all vulnerable to this, even Nobel Prize winners who research this are vulnerable to it. I hope that just knowing that gives us pause. So I'm not going to argue that we shouldn't find patterns in things. As I've said, it's it's terribly useful for us to figure stuff out. I will suggest, though, that we be less confident in the conclusions that we draw. We recognize that all the explanations we're coming up with are, in fact, hypotheses, that this could be what's causing something, and that we test it, we get outside views, and we be a little bit more humble with our explanations and look for opportunities to reverse what we are currently thinking. Yep, absolutely. All good points. Let, let me try and add a couple more to those. I generally think from a, a leadership perspective, the bit about asking people to challenge the patterns, getting some debate, getting some discussion, asking someone to take an opposite view, I think is good. I also think, as I mentioned at the beginning, that sometimes not just using things like correlation, but using other, other ways of looking at the data and absolutely testing things and get in other views. Now, that other views, that I, I really like the idea of the peer reviews and getting other people to look at it, whether that's then people internally in the team, whether that's another part of the organization, whether that's bringing in a, an external consultant just to sort of test your thinking, I think is good and challenge that, that thinking. Can I add one more that I think builds on your leadership idea? I've, yeah. It feels like in some organizations, and I do think this is a function mostly of leadership, it feels like everything's an emergency where we've got to make a decision immediately because the house is on fire and we've got to fix things right away. And I feel like that kind of setting ramps up the opportunities for this kind of bias because yeah. we've gotten a little bit of data in and we need to act on it right away. So we come up with the first possible explanation we can, we can figure for this change in data. Never even consider that it might just be random noise, that maybe nothing's going on, and we act on it immediately. And there's never this chance for introspection. There's never this chance for pausing and learning from what we're doing. So as a part of, of a leadership style, there needs to be not just this encouraging of alternative perspectives, but a little bit of space and a little bit of room. And if you're constantly putting out last minute fires, there's not going to be the opportunity for this kind of thing. Yeah, good point. Good point. So one thing that Ryan and I would like to ask you to do for us, if we could ask a favor, and that would be to leave a review for us. It's really important for us that we get out to as many people as possible. It's really important to us that we hear your views as to how we're doing on the podcast. So if we could ask you to leave a review, that would be really good because 
there's nothing better than hearing on how we're doing and there's no, nothing better than getting more people onto the show and seeing the number of downloads increasing. So if I, we could ask you to do that, that would be really good. Yeah, just a quick review, telling me how great I'm doing and telling Colin what he can do to improve. <laughs> you know, these things really help. I'm noticing a pattern here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks everyone and look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.